times the number of galaxies previously thought. That comes out to roughly between 1 and 2 trillion galaxies. That is just the observable universe. That is to say, how much we can see. That's not even beginning to talk about what might be over the, the proverbial horizon, if you will, within the universe. We're just talking about the observable universe, somewhere between two and three, excuse me, one and two trillion galaxies. My point being, it's, it's as though out there just keeps going on. It's as though it just keeps going on. It's seemingly without limit. Now, believe it or not, there's something very much like that right here on earth. At least there's supposed to be. Something that just keeps going on with no end in sight and that is without limit. And you know what that is? Our forgiveness of one another. That's the way it's supposed to be, according to Jesus, as we just read a moment ago here in Matthew chapter 18. The whole thing is set up by a question. Verse 21, uh, we read, Peter comes to Jesus, then, now, okay, we stop, full stop, didn't get very far with that, did we? But then tells us context is important. It tells us that everything that precedes what we're about to read is connected to and, and pushing forward what we're about to read. So what, is, what came before that? Well, everything else in chapter 18, everything else in Matthew's gospel, everything going back to Genesis, but just chapter 18, then Jesus is, is explaining to us, explaining to his disciples that with the coming of the king and the coming of the kingdom, him, he has created a, a, a new community. A new community that is just absolutely... Uh, radical, unheard of. It is counter-cultural, counter-intuitive, counter-everything. Counter it is driven, shaped, impelled by the gospel, by his work. Part of that, and we, we go back and you look at the flow of Matthew 18 in terms of one, verses uh, 1 through uh, 6, tell us something about you know, who we are, how we're to be thinking of ourselves. Chapters, uh, se excuse me, chapters, verses 7 through uh, 14, what we've been looking at a few weeks ago, the, how we are to think of sin both within and between us, how we're to engage with that and regard that. He tells this parable of the lost sheep, meaning, and we remember this from a few weeks ago, his intent is to care for his own through his own. And then last week we looked at verses 15 and following, when your brother or your sister sins against you, that's the instrumental means, us, what it looks like ordinarily, how he cares for his own, through his own, through us, are loving each other enough to go and speak, to go and engage with one another. Then you get to where we are now, this, this story and Peter's questions. Peter's question is being driven by what Jesus has just said. In this dealing with sin in the camp, if you will, within my own heart and in our relationships one with another, Peter asked this question. The question is being driven by everything that Jesus has been talking about up to this point. So, 
verse 21. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him as many as seven times? Well, Peter thinks himself to be generous. He's saying seven, throwing it out there, and he feels probably pretty safe about this because the rabbis of the time said three. And after three, you're done. Peter's assuming, well, it's got to be, knowing Jesus, it's got to be past three. So he's going to say seven, because that's a good godly number, thinking that's going to be sufficient. What is Jesus' answer? Verse 22, Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 70 times seven, or other, other translations say 77. Well, the thing is, it's not 49 or 490 or 77. The number doesn't matter. Jesus' point is how many? How many times, Peter? More times than you can possibly imagine. That's what Jesus' answer is. Our forgiveness of each other must be without limit. That's what he's saying. Our forgiveness of each other must be without limit. Because God's forgiveness of us is without limit. There's, Jesus is pressing hard here with some inescapable logic. Hard, painful as that is for us to reckon with. And we're going to you know, push into that a little bit here in the next few minutes. But this is what he's saying. Our forgiveness of each other must be without limit because God's forgiveness of us is without limit. Now, because this is such a vital point, such a vital principle that we've got to continually struggle with and live out of, he then tells a story. And as with the case of all of Jesus' stories, they're, they're sneaky. There's a little stealth technology going here, flying underneath our radars, and, he, and then he gets us. He, he hooks us. And you can read this story umpteen times and think you got it the first time, and it's not till the hundred and first time that you really began to get it. And then the thousandth and first time you read it, you're still beginning to get it. It's the nature, the wonder, the beauty of these, of these parables. Three acts is what we see here. Basically, you can break it down. It's like a three-act play. So we're going to look at these one at a time. You can see it how it's broken up there in your, in your outline there in your notebook. Your notebook. I'm thinking about the Inquirer weekend, sorry. Your insert, your outline in your, in your bulletin. Okay, so act one is the king and the first servant driving at this point, the king's lavish grace in canceling the debts. Let's look at it, verses 23 to 27. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. 
It's just astonishing. It's beautiful what we're reading here. Let's, let's grapple with it just a little bit. So let's start with the dilemma of the first servant. He's likely, in the ancient world, this is probably what's going on here, he is a vassal of a provincial ruler, a, a king, a servant under a king. We're just, you know, a good, easy way to tag that. He has what we'll call a debt that is incalculable. A debt that is incalculable, unimaginable. A talent, and some of you probably have footnotes or study notes there in your Bible, you can see this. A talent is, it was a unit of weight, roughly in terms of monetary value, it roughly equivalent, was the equivalent of 20 years' wages. 20 years' wages, that's one talent, okay? And then when you factor in inflation and contemporary gold and precious metal values and all that, this is where that takes you to today in terms of a sum. Six billion dollars. That's a B, not an M. Six billion dollars that this servant owes this king. This is a debt that is just unimaginable. It is incalculable. Another way to think about it is the, the talent was the highest increment, the highest denomination of currency in the ancient world at the time, just a talent. 10,000 was the highest name numeral. You put those two things together, the highest increment of, you know, t- of, of value, and then the number, what do you have? It's astronomical sum, an incalculable sum, unimaginable debt that is just completely unpayable. This, 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 this amount, this 10,000 talents, was higher than the annual income of many kings of the day. This sum was more than the coinage currency than many nations would have. This debt that this one guy owes this king, it's an unimaginable, incalculable, unpayable debt, despite the man's earnest but naive plea for more time. Just give me more time. More time's not going to help you, Bubba. (laughs) This, This is an impossible debt to pay. And that's actually the point. He can't pay it. His only hope is in the king's mercy. His only, he only has but one hope, and it's in the king's mercy. And that's what you see here in this, this story. The sentence looming over him uh, is, is for, him, for all his stuff to be sold off and for him and his family to be sold into slavery which I now say, of course, it is horrible. It doesn't just sound horrible. It is horrible. But it was common practice in the time, you know, to try and recoup some of your losses when you've got someone who's that deeply in debt to you. You sell them into slavery to try and recoup some of what, you know, what otherwise you'd have to write off. And that's not what happens here. Um, the man's hope is that the king will give him more time. Give me an installment plan. Consolidate my debts. The king comes up with a very different solution. Verse 26. So the servant fell on his knees imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, 
The master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. He writes it off. He doesn't give him an installment plan. He doesn't consolidate the, the, the debt. He cancels the debt. He writes it all off, and the man is set free. And why? Only one reason is given. Out of pity, another way to translate that word is compassion. The very same word is, is, is used elsewhere in the Gospels to describe Jesus' feeling, this deep, visceral feeling that Jesus from time to time would have as he would look out upon the helpless crowds. He would feel compassion, pity for them. It's the very same word here of the king as he's looking at this man on his knees, standing before him in all of his need, or kneeling before him in all of his, his need. That's act one. That's act one. The king's lavish grace in forgiving the debts. Okay, let's step out of the story for just a minute here. I want to throw a question your way. Some of you could readily identify with this. Others, like me, are just going to have to kind of project, uh, imagine. So what does it take? What does it take for a runner to push through to the very end of that long race? I'm not talking about a sprinter. I'm talking about a marathon runner. What does it take to, to get through? When your body is just screaming, stop. Yes, grit, right. Yes, determination, right. Got it, sure. You're missing the obvious. Oxygen. The runner needs to open his or her mouth and breathe. Their job in that, of course, is not to manufacture oxygen. Just to take in what's already around them. It's the very same thing with grace and God's favor. Ours is not to manufacture God's favor. Ours is to breathe it in. Just breathe in. Just breathe in. Inhale what's around you in his love, his favor for you. Back to the story. So what we see here is this immense, incalculable, unpayable debt that all of us owe to God. It's fundamental in how we understand ourselves. An incalculable, unpayable debt. That the only way that's going to be taken care of is his writing it off, is his canceling it. And there's one more thing, and I haven't spoken to this, and just because it's worth saving to this point. This incalculable, unpayable debt that he cancels, that he takes care of at great cost to himself. Think with me. He's canceling this debt. This sum of money is never going to be recovered. Think of the hit that the royal treasury is now taking. This is great mercy at great cost. And in many respects, you could make a case that this parable is something of a prophecy because it's being told by Jesus in the near shadow of the cross itself where incalculable mercy is going to be poured out for us at an incalculable cost. 
God's forgiveness of us is without limit. Our forgiveness of one another is to be without limit as well. That's Act 1, Act 2. So we've looked at the king and the first servant. We're now going to look at the first servant and his servant. And moving from the king's lavish grace and canceling our debts, we're now shifting to the absurdity of spurning such grace. Verses 18 through, sorry, chapter 18, starting in verse 28, moving on through verse 31. But when the same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, and seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. So we'll stop there, end of Act 2. Let's talk about the dilemma of the second servant. He owes also, he's in debt, but his debt is what we'll call a reasonable, imaginable amount, 100 denarii, roughly 100 days' wages for a foot soldier or a common laborer. That's what he owes. None of us would want to just, you know, pay that out of pocket immediately, right? Got it? The idea being it's, it's not nothing. It's something. It's there's some substance to it. It's not nothing. But by comparison, it actually is nothing. By comparison, it's relatively nothing. It is, it is a reasonable amount that is relatively insignificant in comparison to what the first servant had been forgiven. Just doing the math, going back to this, what we're talking about here, comparing the two men's debts, what the second servant owed the first was one six hundred thousandths of what the first servant owed the king. One six hundred thousandths. Let that stick in your mind. Which takes us from the dilemma of the second servant to the ingratitude, and hardly begins to to do it, but the ingratitude of the first servant. Now, we actually have a warning sign from the start. You can kind of get a sense, uh uh-oh, there's trouble here just from what we see of him the moment he walks away from the king. Look at what we see there, he, uh, there in verse 28. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants. See, it's, it's not explicit, but it's almost implied he's looking. He's looking, and he finds, and he seizes, and he chokes. Can you imagine the scene? He chokes him and begins to threaten him. Well, that just sets us up for then what actually happens in his his full-orbed, horrifying response. He hears almost the very same words that just moments before he had spoken to the king. You can look at it. It's almost verbatim. It's a little off, but almost verbatim. The very same thing he had pleaded to the king to have, in terms of how to, you know, what he was looking for, what he was pleading for, is almost nearly the same thing that this second servant is, is you know, 
saying to him, and he refuses. He refuses. No wonder the witnesses are horrified. No wonder they are grieved, deeply upset what they have watched here, what they have witnessed. This is act two, the absurdity of rejecting such grace. Here's a news story. News story from just a few years ago in South Africa. Headline, throwing him back. A man surprised nine men who were robbing his home. Eight of the robbers got away, but the homeowner managed to shove one into his backyard pool. After realizing the robber couldn't swim, the homeowner jumped in to save him. Once out of the pool, the thief yelled to his friends to come back. Then he pulled a knife and threatened the man who had just rescued him. The homeowner threw the thief back into the water. It's a true story. And you, you know, right? I mean, if, let's be honest. You hear that and you're thinking, seriously, this guy that just got thrown back into the water deserves everything he got. He deserves everything he got. He deserves everything he got. See where this is going? Back to the story. Do we see ourselves in this second servant? Excuse me, the first servant. Do we see ourselves in our response to the second servant? Do we see ourselves as the first servant? Oh, my friends, we need to. We must. That first servant is you and me, both in what has been forgiven, the debt amassed, what it took for it to be cleared, and our horrifying response to the lesser debts and the lesser debtors around us. That's us. That's us every day. That's the first question. Do we see ourselves in him? Second question is this. How on earth could he respond in such a horrible way? How on earth could he respond in such a horrible way? He was insisting on being repaid what he actually was owed, but he is insisting on being repaid what he was owed because he was oblivious and blind to what he owed and what had been forgiven and what it took for that debt to be forgiven. Again, my friends, this is us. This is you. This is me. This is what's beneath our anger with one another, our resentment towards one another, our bitterness with one another, the grudges that we hold towards one another. This is exactly it right here. We make way too much of way too little. And we make way too little of what ought to be so much greater in our eyes. We've got everything flipped upside down. Our perspective is completely whacked. 
It's like we see ourselves and those that truly have hurt us through funhouse mirror lenses. We're seeing real things wrongly. God's forgiveness of us is without limits. Our forgiveness of one another must then be without limits as well. Act 3. Act 1, Act 2, Act 3. We've talked about the king and the first servant. We've talked about uh, the second servant and the first servant. Now we come back to you know, the final act of the story uh, of, of this same servant now appearing again before the king, and it goes a whole lot differently this time. We see here the, uh, not just the extraordinary, amazing, beautiful uh, generosity and mercy of the king in writing off our debts, and then the utter absurdity uh, in, in uh, presuming upon all of that. But now here we see the frightful fate of the unforgiving, verses 32 to 34. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. Let me just stop there. So the response of the king, how does the king respond? What does he do uh, as a consequence of hearing the news that he has heard is how this man has responded in the way that he, that he has. He summons him. That's the first thing. You note that? He doesn't ignore it. He doesn't turn a blind eye as though he doesn't care. Apparently, he really does care how this first servant is going to respond. He summons him, and he presses him with this inescapable logic. This is how I treated you, and this is now how you're, you're treating him? He summons him and he pronounces a sentence upon him. And note, if you read carefully the details in the story, before he was just, just going to sell him into slavery. Now, he's turning him over to the jailers. And actually, a better way to translate that word is not the jailers, the torturers. And when Jesus, you know, when the king is saying, I'm going to turn you over to the torturers until you repay the debt. It's almost like royal sarcasm. Because once I've turned you over to the torturers, there's no hope of you ever repaying this debt. Forget it. It's done. Not that it ever could have been repaid in the first place. We know that from earlier in the story. It's a warning here. The we see this lavish love, but at the same time, righteous anger. Hunter read from this earlier in Exodus 34, right? It's, it's the first revelation, really, that the Lord makes of himself to his people in Exodus 34. Of any, you know, expanded verbiage. And again and again and again, through the Old Testament, you see, Hearkening back to this self-revelation of God. What does he say? 
about two-thirds through. Uh, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will no, by no means clear the guilty, meaning just pretend it didn't matter. Jesus says in verse 35, so also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Now, we need to be clear on this. And by the way, I meant to say this earlier. Here's a clarifier for you. This parable does not answer, it's not meant to answer every question on the subject of forgiveness. So the plan is actually we're going to go to part two on this next week, okay? We're dealing with what Jesus is dealing with here, okay? But one of the questions that's raised at this point and we need to be careful not to hear what Jesus is not saying. He in no way is saying that when it comes to God's forgiveness, that once that has been given, that it can be withdrawn or taken away if we fail then to forgive one another. He is not talking about that at all. What he is saying here is that a refusal to forgive is a sign that we have never come to grips with how much we owed him, and we have never received his forgiveness in the first place. It's talking about how it's a tragic thing, but it's possible for there to be no fruit because there is no root. This is not a story of salvation lost. This is a story of a heart exposed that's what's going on here, of, of dynamics that were there all along. Some of you know years ago, I ripped up my knee on a soccer field and had to have an, an MRI taken of my left knee. And when we looked at the images, there it was, torn ACL. Did the MRI tear my ACL? No. It revealed what was already there. That's exactly what we're talking about here. It revealed what was already there, what was already true. You see, when, when, when we are grievously wounded, when we are offended, when we are sinned against, it's like an MRI. Yes, of course, it reveals much of that person that has hurt us. But it also reveals much of us and how we respond and how we do or do not forgive and how we strive towards that or how we refuse to. It exposes us. It reveals us. When these times come in the conflict, in the interpersonal strife, that not a matter of if but when and how bad, when that comes, among many other things, that is an opportunity for self-examination and reflection. What's going on in my heart? And what does that tell me about me? not just even talking about them. What does it tell me about me? Our forgiveness of one another is to be without limit because God's forgiveness of us is without limit. Again, we're going to be talking more about this next week, uh, but we, we, we need to deal with what's right in front of us. So I, I know there are other questions. I know there are other concerns, but let's not skip to those and not deal with what's clearly in front of us. If we cannot forgive, if we refuse to forgive, 
that is a sign that is an indication that we have never been forgiven. That's what Jesus is saying. Because to receive the king's mercy is to have a heart of mercy. That's what he's saying. Now, that's a strong message of conviction, and we need to let it land. If you think about it, though, it's also a message of encouragement, the story and the challenge that Jesus is giving. Think with me here. Do we not, do you, do, do I, do we not desire to be merciful? Do we not long to be freed of the shackles of the bitterness and the resentment and the anger that so typifies and wrecks our relationships one to another? Do we not long to be free of that? Are, are, are you not sick of yourself? Are you not sick of that impulse within your heart that responds that way to that kind of, of, of hurt? Do you not long to forgive? What Jesus is showing us here, there's a way out of that. There's a way forward that. There's a hopeful, there's a shaft of light coming through those dark, dark clouds. What would that be? How, how might it be possible that our hearts could be in any way described in this way. It has to do with this. We become like who and what we worship. We become like who and what we worship. Anthropologists, secular and Christian, will tell you this. What we deem, what is our, what our identity is, what we are defined by, shapes us, has profound effects upon us. One commentator I was reading this past week put it this way. Those who worship money increasingly define themselves in terms of it and increasingly treat others as creditors, debtors, partners, or customers rather than as human beings. Those who worship sex define themselves in terms of it, their preferences, their practices, their past histories, and increasingly treat other people as actual or potential sex objects. Those who worship power define themselves in terms of it and treat other people as either collaborators, competitors, or pawns. These and many other forms of idolatry combine in a thousand ways all of them damaging to the image-bearing quality of the people concerned and of those whose lives they touch. We become like who or what we worship. It rubs off on us. We're changed by that. We're shaped by that. Now, just think in terms of your childhood heroes. You wanted to be like them, didn't you? Mine was, I was a child of the 70s and 80s, Steve Austin, the $6 million man. And you know to this day, I'm not kidding, it's really weird. But to this day, when I'm looking out at something way out on the horizon, that sound comes into my head. <laughs> that bionic eye sound. I'm not kidding. Sometimes it happens because it has that kind of effect on you. <laughs> Deeply so. We are shaped by our heroes. We are formed by those who, who have the character characteristics of the things that we admire. And it rubs off on us. Well, what if? What if the focus of our esteem and our adoration and our admiration and our, and our worship was the true and living God, the God of all comfort and compassion and mercy? What if he was the focus of our esteem? What if he was the focus of our admiration and hope? What effect would that have upon us? This king 
who writes off the debt, yours and mine, of 10,000 talents. What effect do you think that would have upon you and me if he was our focus? He was the one we were following. He was the one we were worshiping and the formative effects that would have upon our hearts. Yes, there is a strong, not just note, but drumbeat of conviction here that we must let land on our hearts, and heavily so. But equally so, there is a note of encouragement here. Because just as surely as God's forgiveness of us is without limit, and ours then must be without limit with one another, it can be. It can be. He wouldn't tell us this story if that wasn't true. Let's pray.